Well, we do continue our journey through the book of Acts. We're in chapter 24 today. And uh, Paul has faced a series of trials uh, before the Jewish religious leaders, and now he finds himself before the Roman governor, Felix. And uh, as Paul makes his defense, he actually will make a defense before the religious leaders actually travel up from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Uh, So he's defending himself in front of them. He's defending himself in front of Felix, the Roman governor. And then we're going to see a little bit later in the story, the governor changes and there's a new governor, Portius Festus. Paul has to make his, his defense in front of him. And then at the very end, we're going to see that Paul actually appeals to Caesar. Uh, and that begins his journey to Rome. So what makes Paul's testimony credible to all these environments where he's got to defend himself? What makes his testimony credible? And maybe for all of us, what makes any of us truly reliable witnesses in a trial? Well, in the end, it comes down to the credibility of our lives, doesn't it? Have your actions demonstrated you to be a trustworthy person or not? There's a man named Henry Bosch. He was the longtime editor of Our Daily Bread. It's a little Bible reading guide. And he talks about an incident that really changed him as a child. He says, as a school kid, he would go to work with his dad. And they had the same routine whenever it was the summer and he was able to go to school with his, or work with his dad. They'd get up early, they would get in the car, they would drive to work, and his dad always stopped at the same grocery store. And his routine was to get a coffee and then buy the morning paper. And this one morning, he accidentally grabbed two copies of the morning paper. Didn't notice, got in the car, drove to work, and when he went to read the paper, he's like, oh my goodness, I accidentally grabbed two papers. And his first instinct was, well, no big deal, I'll just pay the guy a little more tomorrow. And then he kind of looked and he thought, you know what? No, somehow this feels important. I need to go back. I don't want this guy to think I'm dishonest. Gets back in his car, drives back to the supermarket and returns the second paper. Said, I picked it up by mistake. I'm totally sorry. And the guy's like, wow, you drove all the way back here? Okay, no problem. Well, wouldn't you know, two weeks later, there's a robbery at the grocery store. And the police come and the store is thinking... And they narrowed down the time to this exact time. And he said, the shopkeeper says, I know there was only two customers in the store. And one of those customers was Henry Bosch's father. And he looks at the policeman. He says, we can rule out one of the suspects right away. This guy is so honest, he brought back a second newspaper he actually mistakenly grabbed about two weeks ago. And so they ruled him out. The police focused in on the other guy, and he totally confessed. And when Henry wrote about it, he said, you know, that small little tiny act of honesty and credibility changed me as a kid watching my dad, and it made a huge impact on that shopkeeper. Well, as we jump into the book of Acts in chapter 24 today, it's exactly the same with the Apostle Paul. His life is the backbone of his testimony. And we're going to read how Paul says, I'm an open book. If you want to look at my life, go ahead. All right. 
Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 24, five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge with this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man, Paul, to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in their accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection both of the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found me in when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. Then Felix, who is well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. So Paul really lays it out. He just presents his life as an open book. He says, okay, Roman Governor Felix, here is the straight goods. I've got nothing to hide. I love the end result as we throw up our next slide. It says, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. Incredible. You know, over the years, one of our questions in the quiz was, did Paul actually preside over the death of a Christian? And yes, before Paul came to faith in Christ, he stood there and gave full approval to Stephen's death. Paul has come a huge long way in his development of following Jesus. Christ has worked in him. The Holy Spirit has worked in his heart. And Paul at this point, all these years later, is really a model of a God-honoring person who makes ethical choices and his conduct is really evidence of so much growth and maturity you know jesus final words before jesus ascended to heaven were go and make disciples jesus didn't say 
just go and sign people up to follow me. It doesn't matter if we see any evidence of growth or change in life. Just get them to wear the label. That's not what he said. He said, go and make disciples. Making disciples, really just that, that process, learning to follow Jesus closer, where our character gets changed, where we make good ethical decisions, how we treat other people. All of those things change over time and become better. And that's what Christ had done in the life of the Apostle Paul. That's what Christ does in each and every one of our lives. And as Paul stood there on trial and they were accusing him of all these things, he was able to very calmly say, you know what? All of these charges, it's all nonsense. It's all garbage. And I want to remind all of us this morning that that's ultimately the goal, one of the goals for our Christian life. And we aren't perfect. There's no human being that's ever done the 45-degree straight shot to the top. Nobody, not even the Apostle Paul. It is a much more up and down, kind of jagged line. But over time, we see progress. We look back five years in our life and we go, wow, God has worked in my life. My character, my choices, all those things are being rounded out. You know, all of us continue to fail and mess up. That's just part of life. I think that's why this verse in 1 John 1.9 exists. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just will forgive us our sins, purify us from all unrighteousness. The effect of that is instant. There's no waiting time, no waiting period. It's instant. I love that. God has been working through the Apostle Paul and his fellow workers. As we've journeyed through Acts, it's so obvious that they go to do something and the Holy Spirit says, no, I don't want you there. I want you over there. Or, You want to go on quickly to the next place. I want you to stay. I want you to stay in this town. Or I want you to do this certain thing. And as the Spirit has been leading Paul's discipleship and all the guys that he is training and teaching, everyone's been going through this process. And that's exactly what happens to you and I. The longer we follow Jesus, the more we stay open to that, the more we ask for that, the more he changes and shapes and molds us. And that's an amazing thing. For some people, that's kind of a shocking truth. You're like, wait a second, you mean over time I can actually get better? Yes. It's just a real simple, dead, honest prayer. It's honestly asking Jesus to chip away the arrogance, the fear, the anxiety, the temptation to hurt, backstab others. Progress is possible in our lives. Well, Paul kind of switches from kind of making that individual defense into kind of a seamless opportunity to proclaim some of the points of the gospel. And this is partly why this whole thing is happening. God had engineered it to set Paul up to explain to the people in power of that time period the, the good news of the gospel. I love how Paul says, However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. He goes on to talk about how he believes the Bible, the prophets, all those things, and he hopes in the resurrection at the end. And if you think who Paul is getting to explain this to, it's pretty amazing. The Roman governor, 
all the people in the court, some Roman soldiers, the high priest, the Jews that have come, their lawyer. These are the people in power in the province of Judea. And here's Paul getting to explain the gospel to him. And then he slides back into kind of the defense of his conduct. And you know, as we walk through all of that, it's amazing that Paul has taken all this negative stuff, all these negative things, his arrest, the riot, the false accusations, all these trials, one after the other. Paul has taken all that negative junk and he has turned it into a positive. And when I was preparing this week, all of a sudden I kind of went, whoa, that's so encouraging. Because every single one of us faces really tough stuff in our life. And we need to walk in Paul's footsteps and through the power of the Holy Spirit take all the hard things in life and transition them to the positive. I hope that speaks to your heart today. Maybe your job is frustrating the heck out of you. Maybe your coworker made a negative dig at you and it's been really bothering you. Maybe, maybe you got some really bad health news from the doctor and it's just kind of sent your world spinning. Maybe you're a parent and you've gone through a really difficult time raising kids and you just kind of want to run away and scream. Uh, maybe you're a teenager in high school facing crazy pressure to conform and you just want to say, just let me be myself. There's an incredible place of confidence and peace that the Apostle Paul came to. Verse 16, that amazing declaration, he says, So I strive to always keep my conscience clear before God and man. You know what? If you and I have our relationship with Jesus straight, then we can begin to deal with all the external problems and challenges. All right, well, Paul's been on trial in a very public way. Now, in our second point, Paul's going to get a chance to be in a very private conversation with the governor, Felix, and his wife, Drusilla. We're going to pick it up in verse 23. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ, Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping Paul would offer him a bribe, so he'd set a so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Well, Paul continues to face this long t trial of imprisonment with faith and an expectant attitude. Now, I think if Paul was honest, it probably the whole thing didn't make sense to him. He probably thought, Lord, what are you doing? God, what, what is up? I could be out there planting churches. I could be seeing people come to faith. We could be making a big deal here. But although it doesn't make sense to me, I'm going to trust that you have a plan, that you have a bigger purpose in mind. 
And I bet Paul was praying, Lord, I'm here. I'm stuck in jail. I can't leave. You bring the opportunities to me. And he doesn't have to wait very long. Several days later, it's the Roman governor Felix and his wife Drusilla who want to hear more about faith in Jesus. Now Luke specifically tells us that Drusilla, Felix's wife, is of Jewish ancestry. So in one couple, we have a Roman Jew, or so we have a Gentile Roman and a Jewish woman. And that's exactly what Paul has spent the last 10 years of his life reaching. Jewish people in synagogues and Gentile people in the Roman world. Paul is the perfect guy to speak to them. And so for the wife, I'm sure Paul kind of unpacked the first half of the Bible and said, you know, the coming of Jesus was predicted by the prophets and he would have shown her all those kind of things. Christ is the fulfillment of everything our people have been waiting for. And I think he probably showed Felix some different things. As we saw in Acts 17, Paul knew Greek and Roman poets and authors. He probably would have quoted them. And there's one really interesting aspect here. There were three classic Roman virtues that were held up in Roman society. Courage, character, and excellence. And all of a sudden we're reading and we come down to verse 25. And it says, as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And all of a sudden it hit me, you know what? Those three actually dovetail together. We have a great slide Bonnie's going to throw up there. Character. The Romans carried so much about your character. And what is Paul talking about? Righteousness. The Romans cared about excellence. Paul is talking about you can have self-control. The Romans cared about courage. And Paul talks about the judgment to come. Amazing dovetail. But then it kind of gets too close to home for Felix. We get a little glimpse into the human heart. Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send, it, send for you. This is the pattern of so many people through the last 2,000 years of church history. They, they begin to listen to the gospel. They understand it with their head. It begins to make sense. They have their questions answered. They're convinced and their heart is there, but their, or their head is there, but their heart hasn't quite caught up yet. And I think this is what happened to Felix. He all of a sudden went, whoa, I am so close to accepting this. I'm so close to following Christ. But wait a second, what would happen if I followed Jesus? Could, could I stay in power? What about the tools of the trade, the bribery, violence, intimidation? How could, I, how could I follow Jesus and rule the way I always have? He realizes he has to give something up, a huge something up, if he follows Jesus. And he gets scared. I think that's so cloud. And there are so many people. This is the exact place everyone arrives at. Are we going to take that step of faith or not? says in verse 26, at the same time he was hoping Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. What an incredible push and pull in the human heart. Felix wants it, but he doesn't want it. He wants it, but he doesn't want it. He keeps asking for Paul to come. And that's exactly where so many people end up, and they, 
they say, yeah, I'm cool with Jesus as my Savior. I really like that idea. I like the idea that he could, he could save me from my sin. He could give me eternal life. He could give me the get out of hell free card. That sounds great. But you're also saying I got to make him the Lord of my life? Like I actually need to follow him each and every day? Even if it affects my job? And for some people, that's the critical moment. And they can't make that decision. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us. We don't know what happened to Felix and his wife, Drusilla. Maybe they did come to faith and repentance in the end. I hope so. But even if they didn't, I know that God was doing something here. There would have been soldiers every single time they met. And those guys would have heard these conversations. The Christians that were in Caesarea that were constantly coming to the jail, bringing Paul food and clothing, Paul would have been saying, hey, man, it's crazy. I had another opportunity to talk to the Roman governor. That little small fledgling church in Caesarea would have been so encouraged. Paul's sharing his faith with the governor. And I want to say to anybody who's watching online this morning or here in person, that if you think are honest with yourself, if you look into your own heart and you go, you know what, I'm at that exact same spot. I'm almost ready to decide. I'm almost ready to believe. Your head tells you following Jesus is absolutely the right thing to do, but your heart is scared. Here's my encouragement. Do not ignore the Holy Spirit of God. He's nudging you. He's prompting you inside. Grab a mature Christian follower. If you've got questions you need answered, Ask them. If we can help, here's the church staff, call us up. But don't pull back because of fear. Take a lesson from Governor Felix. Well, finally, it hits verse 27. It says, when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. At first, that seems so unbelievable. Two years, Paul is stuck in jail. A total miscarriage of justice. And at the end of the day, slightly depressing. But Paul is stuck in prison for two years. How is this fair, God? I'm sure there was lots of nights in Paul's cell where he's like, oh Lord, I'm trying, but this is really long and really hard. But it's in those moments that God is always up to something. Now, how many of you remember the tsunami that happened in 2004? Do you guys remember that? The huge tsunami wave? It did so much damage, especially countries like Indonesia that are a series of islands. Those waves came in and swamped them. There's a little town called Mulaba in Indonesia, in the province of Aceh. And 80% of the town was destroyed by the tsunami wave. Tragically, 80% of the people in the town died. But there's one silver lining that came out of that horrible tragedy. In that town, there was about 400 Indonesian Christian believers. And they had said to their community, we want to celebrate Christmas this year. And the town is largely Muslim. And they said, no, we don't want you to publicly celebrate Christmas in the town. What we will allow you to do is go up onto that high hill behind the city, and you can celebrate Christmas up there. I think we actually have a picture of it. 
You can see the high hill there behind the city of Muleba. And so all the Christians said, okay, if that's what we're allowed to do, that's what we're allowed to do. And so they very calmly and, and quietly gathered all their stuff and they marched 400 people and all their stuff up to the top of the mountain. And they celebrated Christmas. And then it was Boxing Day that the tsunami hit. They were all spared, all 400 of them up on top of the mountain, saved from destruction. And when I read that this week, it hit me so strongly that if they had insisted on their rights, if they had said, no, it's wrong that we don't get to celebrate Christmas in this town. It's wrong that we're not allowed to be part of the community. We're staying, we're staying for our rights. They would have died. I think it demonstrates incredible humility and faith that they said, okay, Lord, it doesn't make sense to us, but if this is what needs to happen, we accept it. We'll do it. And so they marched up to the top of the hill and God spared all of their lives. And it, it hit me as I was reading that that's an incredible parallel with the Apostle Paul. Nowhere in the scripture do we see him give up, become depressed, whine, want to end it all even though he's stuck in jail for this whole period of two years, he somehow has caught into the place in his Christian life where he simply accepts what is happening as part of God's bigger plan to get him eventually to Rome, to the center of the empire. And I think in life, there are absolutely times when Christians need to stand up and fight for our rights, and there is a time when we need to accept our circumstances as part of God's will in the bigger picture of what he is doing. Well, finally, after two years, a leadership change comes. Governor Felix has moved on, and there's a new governor brought in, Portius Festus. So what's going to happen to Paul? Will things get better? Will they get worse? Well, we got 12 verses left in chapter 25. We're going to pick it up. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented their charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred back to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me. And if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had stood, came down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. 
And as we get to finish up the book of Acts in the next few weeks, we will see Paul's journey from Caesarea all the way to Rome. He's going all the way to the top. He's going to Caesar. Pretty incredible ending. You know, Paul hung on to that promise where Jesus had come to him in his prison cell in Jerusalem and said, be strong, be courageous. You will stand before Caesar in Rome. And Paul courageously takes this leap at this moment and says, I appeal to Caesar. And you know what? God is doing two amazing things here. Number one, God is saving Paul's life. Those crazy extremists were planning to jump him on the way back to to Jerusalem. They were going to do another ambush. And even if Paul had somehow survived that, the court in Jerusalem would have condemned him to death. So God saves Paul's life. Number two, Paul's testimony is now being brought right to the heart of the whole Roman world, being brought to Rome. I looked it up and I said, would it be possible that Paul would actually stand trial before Caesar? And they, most historians feel that would have been possible. What would have been likely is that Paul would have been tried by a really high-level government official. So either way, the gospel was going to the highest level of the Roman government. The church planted in Rome would rally around Paul. Christians would get a lot of attention and notice. But through it all, Paul just exhibits this amazing sense of faith and trust. He is sold out to Jesus. Jesus has made Paul a promise, and Paul says, Okay, Lord, I'm going to believe you no matter what happens. And I think that's a great place for us to end today. And I want to say to all of us, myself included, be strong, courageous. You never lose when you push all your poker chips into the middle of the table and bet on Jesus. And when we do that, when our heart fully surrenders to Christ, God has this amazing way, just like he used the Apostle Paul's life. God has this amazing way to take our lives and do amazing good with them. And In that process, we learn trust. We learn faith. We learn that God's got us in this life and the life to come. Jesus was putting the final chapters of Paul's testimony together. And just like we saw at the beginning of the sermon with that dad who returned that second newspaper, the integrity of your life is your most prized possession. God had a big plan for Paul's life, and he's got a big plan for your life. Trust him and take the leap. Amen?